The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us talk tonight a little bit more about the precepts that Tibetan gurus taught to their disciples the famous yoga of the disciple from Tibetan yoga. We are nearing the end of this. We are in the last but one of the chapters that I intend to comment here for you. This is the 24th chapter of this text. It's more like a paragraph than an actual chapter. And it is called the 10 more precious things because something is more precious than something else. This thing with more precious is, of course, sometimes, as I warned from the very beginning, politically incorrect. For example, the point number two, which was commented already, says one sage, one sage, a wise person, an enlightened being, is more precious than multitudes of irreligious and worldly-minded persons. You can't really say that in the modern democracies, right? that Ramakrishna is more precious than a hundred idiots. So if you choose who should die, you should choose the hundred idiots, not Ramakrishna, because for the society, Ramakrishna is way, way more important than a hundred insignificant idiots. You are not even allowed to call them insignificant idiots anymore. So therefore, this is politically incorrect in the moment when you start creating hierarchies, especially between people, or between some situations. So that is why this chapter is delicate, difficult in itself. It reflects some judgments belonging to the old times. I'm um, always surprised in modern politics when every time when something is according to the tradition it mysteriously gets to be labeled right-wing, like it's some sort of fascistic thing. I don't know why the traditional old things always fall as a right-wing politics, and the left-wing politics is supposed to be progressive, cool, nice, open, and all that. But um, that's the way the definitions are going. Of course, there are some deeper things there which we are not going into at this point. So we managed to comment last time the first three of these so-called more precious things. The last of them, number three, was one esoteric truth is more precious than innumerable exoteric doctrines. Compare, for example, for your scandal some esoteric truth about, let's say, cancer, the disease, and multitudes of exoteric truths. Lots of hormones, vitamins, microscope research, x-ray, and stuff which falls into the exoteric truths. This is exactly the way the tradition went. René Guénon, who was a great upholder of the tradition, a Frenchman who is one of the 
top five metaphysicians of the 20th century, René Guénon uh, even wrote a book which was called The Rule of Quantity, that people believe more in quantity than in quality, and the esoteric truths are qualitative, they are obtained through meditation, synthesis, insight, while the exoteric truths are quantitative truths obtained through simply accumulating data. So, some of the esoteric truths are contested. For example, there is a law of action and reaction in mechanics, in electricity, in magnetism, in chemistry, in biology, in ecology. And somebody, very smart, long time ago, has synthesized all these under the name of the law of action and reaction or the law of karma. Although the law of action and reaction is accepted in physics, the law of karma is considered to be a hypothesis, like science does not admit it. Because it is at a level where any scientist would say, how do you know that it would apply in all the situations? Of course, there is no scientific way which demonstrates that as above, so below. And yet that is a truth seen in meditation, in insight, by clairvoyance. And that is why this is a quality truth which cannot yet be proven scientifically, and yet it is known to be true in esoteric doctrines. We cannot demonstrate the yin and the yang, and yet a great part of spirituality and traditional medical systems, they take it for granted, while Many branches of medicine say all these chi theories about yin and yang are just imagination. They are just placebo. That's the difference between an esoteric truth and the, the exoteric truth, this quantitative truths which we are talking about. It's a leap. Fourth of the more precious things, now that we warmed up, let's go into the new ones of today. One momentary glimpse of the divine wisdom born of meditation is more precious than any amount of knowledge derived from merely listening to and thinking about religious teachings. Like if you listen to religious teachings for 60 years and if you think about religious thinkings for 50 years. All that is not having the same value as one momentary glimpse of the divine wisdom, of the divine reality, born of meditation. This puts things into perspective. Like, of course, even in yoga, you need to learn a lot. You need to study a lot. But Above those who learn are those who practice and especially those who obtain results. What, what is really important in spiritual practice is when you get results. You should 
not only think about things you should do and you should do until results are appearing. One momentary glimpse of the divine wisdom in this case is more valid than any amount of studying, listening, thinking about. Any amount. The same thing can be used about other things which are smaller. <clears throat> any amount of thinking or studying the mysterious phenomenon of identification called by the yogis from India Samyama, it will not be equal with the fact that one day you actually experienced for two minutes the actual phenomenon of Samyama. When you have experienced it, when you have a glimpse of it, then you will understand that the theory can never express accurately what is actually happening. And what is happening does correspond to the theory fully and yet in a way which is unexpected. Very, very often in spirituality you have this that you discover, aha, the old teachers were so perfectly right and yet it is not the way I imagined it by just reading the texts. Like even the perception of energy. How does energy feel through the body and through the chakras? You imagine it one way and after three years of yoga it feels definitely in another way than you imagined. It's not quite the way you imagined it will be. So this is, after all, the difference between practice and theory. Theoretical speculation cannot equal, cannot replace the value of practice, of the practical achievement. Five, the smallest amount of merit dedicated to the good of others is more precious than any amount of merit devoted to one's own good. This is very difficult to understand because in the beginning it seems to be just a preaching of selflessness. You have to be selfless. However, it is more than that because in yoga it is also said, even in Buddhism, in Buddhist spiritual teachings, this being a Tibetan in teaching which comes from a Buddhist environment, which says first, save yourself. First, take care of yourself. Like if you are not the change that you want to see in the world, how will you be able to help the world? How can a person that has no peace of mind produce peace in the world, peace of mind, especially in the world? As much as you would like it to see, you cannot become a preacher of non-violence while you are still violent. Therefore, always in the beginning you have to focus on yourself. There is not a selfishness in that. It's actually a necessity. And yet, the fifth of the teaching here of the Tibetan yogis says that the smallest amount of merit dedicated to the good of others 
is more precious than any amount of merit devoted to one's own good. Like, yes, sure, you devote merit, which means effort, constructive effort, you devote merit to your own good. That's necessary. Good for you. In case you do it, I'm glad you are a conscious, conscientious person and you are doing the right thing. But then there exists the next step. And the next step is that in the moment when many of your issues have been sorted out, at least to a tolerable level, then it is time to do something for the others. As the Dalai Lama says in a famous article, a famous interview, where he said, if you don't live even a little bit for the good of the others, you are wasting your life. Like you cannot afford to live in complete selfishness. Living in complete selfishness does not correspond to the Dharma. It does not correspond to the cosmic law. It is true. In the beginning, you have to be selfish. Imagine that Buddha would have wanted to make his parents and wife and everybody happy. And he would have said, no, as much as I wish to reach nirvana and as much as I wish to reach wisdom, I can't do it because I have to please my dad and my mom and my wife and whoever. And he would have pleased them saying, I can't be so selfish as to go to seek nirvana for myself. That selfishness is allowed, is actually legitimate. Buddha is praised because he has been so selfish. He has hurt three, four, five people and he has blessed billions in exchange. So it was worth it. Like, it is okay to take care of yourself because starting from the level where you are, as you live in a state of confusion, even if you are a nice person and you try to please everybody around you, this will not lead anywhere. The world is full of nice people who try to please their family and their acquaintances. And none of them is becoming a Buddha and none of them really stands strong in that way. That's why I'm saying it is okay. This shloka, this, this sutra here, this statement does not say that you should not dedicate any merit to your own good. Especially because in the beginning it's necessary. But it says when you have finished with laying your foundation, when your foundation is solid and now you are on the path, then there comes a good time to start dedicating time and merit to other people's good. There are, I have encountered many, many people who realized, who saw practically that when they were trying to do prayer blessings and things for themselves, it worked. And when they tried to do blessings, prayers or other things selflessly, sometimes even without those people knowing, for other people, then it worked a hundred times stronger. It doesn't say that doing things for yourself doesn't work or shouldn't be done. It just puts things into perspective. 
It says what is more precious than what? Doing things for yourself, especially as long as you are not stepping over dead bodies, is good and even inevitable and necessary. But remember that the smallest amount of merit dedicated to the good of others is more precious than any amount of merit devoted to your own good. That's why ultimately, even in Tibetan Buddhism, they instituted the Bodhisattva vows that all your spiritual practice one day will bring fruition to the rest of the world. Like you are not going to chicken out and go in nirvana and say, fuck the world, I got my nirvana. You guys take care of yourselves because that's it. Everyone for themselves. No. After you win some spiritual accomplishment, stay and share it with the world. Try to make other people understand this depth where you have been. Because the merit dedicated to others is very precious. Unfortunately, this confuses some people thinking that you should not consecrate any merit or effort to yourself. It is not this what is said here. It says, again, some effort for yourself is inevitable and necessary, but don't forget that sooner or later that is done. And when that is done then don't forget to move on to starting benefiting others because that is the meaning of it. This is a statement which simply affirms the organic nature of reality and of the universe. We are all one. Remember when Jesus asked which is the primary law from ancient Judaism, Nicodemus or Joseph or one of those very learned men told him that the biggest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your might, with all your heart. And Jesus said, yes, indeed, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. That is the greatest commandment. But there is a number two commandment which is as great as that and which, again, was ignored because they did not go into Anahata. And that second commandment was, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Not only vertically loving God, but horizontally loving everyone, because everyone is God. So you are not supposed to love only some abstract God which you don't see. You are supposed to love the God that you can see and with whom you share the reality. And thus, this statement, equivalent to this statement of Jesus, is stating exactly this organic nature of the universe, that we are organically interconnected. You often see people saying, oh, we are all one. But how far would people be willing to take this analogy? to take this thought. And thus, here the Tibetan yogis say, only he or she that has profoundly understood the nature of reality will also care about the others. If you cannot see it, Ramakrishna said, 
you profess that you are looking for God. Well, he said then, seek for God in the human beings. Because the human beings are the nearest, closest manifestation of God on the face of this earth. Not the dolphins, not the dogs, not the trees. Actually, the human beings are built in the likeness of God. And thus, Ramakrishna said, if you cannot see it in the human beings, then you are a hypocrite. You are just dedicated yourself to some God. But when it comes to the facts, you are spitting on everybody. You are completely disdainful of everybody because the most simple visual expression of God are your fellow men. Your fellow men represent the same God as you do. There is the same divine consciousness in every human being as there is in you. And therefore, that would be a sign that you really are concerned with God when you can see it. Nobody says it's wrong if you see it in dolphins and dogs and trees. That's fine. That's a further extension of it. But you have to put the horses in front of the cart, not the cart in front of the horses. There is a priority. The number one emanation is the human being. And then there come the dolphins and the chimpanzees and whatever else is coming there. See it in the right perspective. So, here, understand correctly this statement, there appears a great understanding. It's a higher state of consciousness in the moment when you can do it for others. That is why the most simple manifestation of this is altruism or selflessness. If you can do one thing, even to your disadvantage, to favor someone else, which is a sort of approximative definition of selflessness, then it means you have understood. That is why in religion, religion praises, even conventional religion, praises any experience where the human being can go beyond themselves. Patriotism, like people who die for their country. If you can die for your country, you are selfless. You can die for the collectivity. That's a great step forward. Selfish people say, fuck the collectivity. I'm not going to die for them. It's a bunch of morons. They don't deserve me sacrificing for them. Sacrifice is when a father or a mother sacrifices their life or not to be so dramatic. They sacrifice time and energy for their children, for their family. That's why family and this form of sacrifice is praised in religion. Not because it's a great spiritual practice. The only great spiritual practice in it is selflessness. That you get to knuckle, you get to work hard for other people who at some point might give you the finger and be totally ungrateful and you still work for them. The fact that you can do that shows that you have given up on your selfishness, shows that you have some amount of selflessness. 
selflessness appears when you are in love. When you are in love, you can actually suffer, sacrifice, sometimes die for the beloved person. That's selflessness. That's why love is so praised. Because when we love, there have been people who were declared, you know, that's definitions, conventional definitions, completely unspiritual. Of course, everybody is spiritual because everybody has spirit. And the spirit is the nature of God. But still, we say some people are spiritually interested, some people are utterly unspiritual. That's a sort of a gross definition and separation which works for conventional needs in daily life, but it is not fundamentally true. Even then, there have been people who were unspiritual and they fell in love and out of love they could go till death. They could die. Like those, that day of love which they had made them selfless. Amazing. Beautiful. That's why love is praised. Family is praised. Friendship is praised. Patriotism is praised. In many religions, they pray for the heroes. They pray for the heroes who died on the battlefields defending the motherland and stuff like that. What's so precious about that? Why does religion care about that? Why is religion just kissing the ass of the establishment and playing nice? No. Religion simply says if somebody could die for their family or motherland or something, then somebody has demonstrated at least a certain amount of selflessness. There are people who are at a level of ferocious selfishness. They would not budge a finger for anything or anybody. That level is surpassed in this saying here, that it's good to take care of yourself, because otherwise you are a hypocrite and you cannot help the world. But in the moment when you have taken care of yourself to a level which corresponds to common sense, then it is also time to look into the world, because the world is the body of God. The world is God in manifestation, and thus, to have to, dev- to devote, to, to give some amount of merit for the good of others, it is actually showing a higher level of consciousness. It means you understood that what you do for others, you do for yourself. It's like Jesus says, you gave me food, you gave me to drink, I was wounded and you tended my wounds. I was a prisoner and you visited me in my prison. And you are going to say, when, God, did we do all this? Like, you know, if Jesus would be sick, everybody would barge in, except the enemies of the Christ, everybody would barge in to help, you know, because you think if I give some food to Jesus and he blesses me, I'm fixed for a thousand years. You know, it's like, I'm, that's the best thing. If you can help one like Buddha or like Christ, You are in the limelight completely. And so Jesus says, you are going to say, when did we do this? Like, I wish I would have helped Jesus with something. But alas, I have not met him physically. So when? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, 
that whoever did this to the least of my brethren did it to me. Like even when you do it to a beggar on the street, Jesus says you do it to me indirectly. That's exactly the statement of this. Everybody is in the person of the cosmic Christ and thus dedicating merit to others is a demonstration. Not that you want to demonstrate. It's a natural expression of the fact that you raised your consciousness above the levels of pure selfishness. Number six. To experience but momentarily the samadhi where all thought processes are quiescent, which is the definition of the nirvikalpa samadhi. So to experience nirvikalpa samadhi for just a moment is more precious than to experience uninterruptedly the samadhi wherein thought processes are still present. Sa vikalpa samadhi. Very technical definition in the beginning, but it still it shows the preferences. Like it is not a coincidence. Sometimes people tend to take this hierarchy of yoga, like right, yeah, right. The, the chakras, for example, Manipura chakra is above Svadhisthana chakra. In the same trend, you could say that to have one hour of Manipura consciousness is more precious than to have 70 years of Svadhisthana consciousness. Like these hierarchies are not just something for the intellectual games of the people who invented them. They express a natural hierarchy of the universe. Like when you go to the next level, you go to the next level. And you have surpassed completely the previous levels. Therefore, to experience momentarily the nirvikalpa samadhi is more precious than to experience uninterruptedly the savikalpa samadhi. It's a very big statement. Savikalpa samadhi means forms of samadhi. Savikalpa samadhi means forms of ecstasy. And... The Tibetan yogis say one moment of nirvikalpa samadhi beats uninterrupted ecstasy for all your life. Why? Because it is showing us the next level. Nothing can beat that. Because we are all in search of the next level, of the unknown, of the thing which transcends. And there we have no compass. There where we believe the shastras, we believe Patanjali, but who knows if Patanjali was right. We believe our guru, but everybody can have doubts about their guru. And then there comes the third thing, which is the only thing which is stronger than the Shastras and then the advice of the guru. The third thing is your own experience, that you manage to experience it directly. That's why... It is important to experience it. And remember, these hierarchies are natural hierarchies. Like in the moment when you've gone to the next level, even for a brief time, it's like somebody who has been to the top of a mountain. 
you know that sometimes spiritual guidance is compared with a mountain guiding, mountaineering guiding, that somebody is a mountain guide. And if a mountain guide has never been on that mountain, what can they guide? They cannot really guide. They are imposters. They might get lucky if they do it perfectly according to the map and to what they heard from others. But it's very little probability that theory fits with what's on the land, with what is practice, practical. And that's why when somebody has had that momentary experience, it's like somebody has been to the top of the mountain for five seconds. Been there, done that. It's a completely different story then. Because when somebody wants to go to the top of the mountain and says, have you been there? You can say, yes, been there, done that. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but you've been there only for five seconds. I've been there, nevertheless. Maybe you will go and stay there five hours. Good for you. If I've been there five seconds, it's as good as if I've been there 50 hours from the standpoint of knowing where I'm going. Because I've been there. Thus, this is, I want you to understand, because many people don't take seriously these things, like Svadhisthana. People think that Manipura is dispensable. It's not. One minute on Manipura is more than a whole lifetime on Svadhisthana. It's very difficult to understand this. And one minute on Anahata is more than a lifetime on Manipura. And one minute on Vishuddha is more than a lifetime on Anahata. And so on and so forth. Every new level is a complete new dimension. And it is worth exploring it in actual fact. Seven. To enjoy a single moment of nirvanic bliss is more precious than to enjoy any amount of sensual bliss. It doesn't again say the interpretation of the ascetics would immediately be, so we go for nirvana, we don't go for sensuality. This shloka, sutra, whatever you want to call it, this statement doesn't say, so and therefore, fuck sensual bliss. It doesn't have that ending. It says you can have a lifetime of sensual bliss. Yet, you should never lose out of sight that one moment of nirvanic bliss is more than all that. Like there are many people who try, instead of going for happiness, to go for pleasure. The definition of happiness for superficial people starting from a distorted hedonistic philosophy, a distorted Epicureanism. In the Greek environment, there are these two currents, one of them called hedonism and one of them called Epicureanism, from Epicurus, the philosopher, which simply says, suck the marrow out of life. You know, seize the day, and get as much as possible, like live in the present for the sake of fun. Today, you should eat the best food that you could eat. You should sleep in the most comfortable bed that you can. You should have most fun. 
get most blowjobs, see the most beautiful sunsets, do whatever, enjoy yourself to them. People should live life for maximum enjoyment. From the standpoint of all the bona fide religions of this world, this statement is bullshit. Not because there is something wrong in the pleasures, but because again, you put the cart in front of the horses. You got your priorities wrong. There's nothing wrong with eating delicious food. The question is, where is the nirvanic bliss? Many people, when I ask them, what do you want to do with your life? They say, I didn't quite fathom that. What I know is that I want to be happy. And then I ask them, what's your definition of being happy? Because there have been people who died, burned at stake, and they were happy. They were martyrs who were crucified or thrown to the lions, and they declared themselves to be happy. So where is the ha- what is happiness? Because we know what, uh, for Jack the Ripper, we know what happiness meant. So what is happiness, what he thought happiness was? We know what happiness is for a thief. We know what happiness is for a workaholic. We know what happiness is for a rapist. So what is happiness? Because that's a stupid definition. I search, I want to be happy. Right. So do the rapists. So do the thieves. So do many other people. So what is really happiness? And therefore, many people, when they define happiness, they do not know how to define happiness except through the five senses. They say happiness is when you get pleasant input through all the five senses. Like smell pleasant things, taste pleasant things, see pleasant things, feel pleasant things, hear pleasant things. That is a completely non-traditional definition of happiness because it places happiness in the lower five chakras, in the domain of Prakriti, and in the domain of the senses. And spirituality teaches us that happiness is a sort of irrational feeling of fulfillment in which I have the feeling that I'm doing the right thing, like I'm like the prodigal son returning home, although I'm ashamed and hungry and shabby and everything seems to be bad, and yet I'm happy because I feel I took the right decision and I'm doing the, wrong, the, the right thing. And therefore, we all know that there were people who woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and did hard work every day and they were happy. And for some people to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning is like a pain in the bones and a pain in the body and a punishment. And if it would be continued for 6 months, it would be like living hell or something like this. That's why I say happiness is not pleasure and pleasure is not happiness. Identifying these two is a typical rule of quantity that people don't see the quality, people see the quantity, the gross manifestation of it. And why am I saying this? Because, again, people define like very often and in spirituality... People define like life has to be enjoying sensual bliss. Please realize when written in a religious Buddhist environment, 
Sensual does not mean only sex. Sex is just one form of sensualism. But for example, eating delicious food and being a gourmet is also sensual. Taking a one hour long shower is also sensual. Every satisfaction of the five senses is sensual. So sensuality, sensual bliss means the people who look for pleasure and happiness through the senses. Most people try to fill up their lives with that. Relationship, sex, food, everything is just a rush of dopamine, is just a rush of serotonin, is just a rush of endorphin, is just a rush of oxytocin. It's all a rush of chemicals which make us feel good. It's like life is a drug. We are drugging ourselves constantly to feel good. And when people come to spirituality, sometimes the drugs stop. And then you feel very miserable. And many people think that there is something wrong with spirituality. Like there have been people who went and started fasting, not drinking water, punishing themselves physically whenever they felt sexual desire, and a lot of things. So their life taken at face value must have been quite painful and miserable on a daily basis. And yet their soul was singing. Like they were having sensual hell and happiness in their soul. Which shows very clearly that happiness and pleasures are not the same thing. <clears throat> That's why it is very difficult to see this in the world of Tantra. In the world of asceticism, you can see it. Because there are people who are cutting off, cutting off, cutting off, cutting off any form of sensual enjoyment. And yet they discover happiness. In Tantra... The biggest trap, it is a trap indeed, and that's why I have to bring it up, is that we accept a lot of pleasure because the tantrics have discovered methods for turning the pleasure into their benefit. Like even pleasure can be used for bringing energy to Sahasrara. So why not use pleasure? Which is fine as principle, but some people may mistake, may misunderstand that since in Tantra we are very much okay with pleasure, with sensual pleasures of all the five senses, then pleasures are the goal of Tantra. Pleasure, sexual or not, is not the goal of Tantra. Pleasure is an instrument and it sounds so bold of a statement that the people who go ascetic they don't even trust it they say it's very easy to say that but maybe it's just a very lousy excuse at least we who are ascetic we know one thing for sure we are not gluttons we are not sensualists we are not hedonists because we slap our wrist all day long and we make sure 
that we don't enjoy ourselves. And then, at least we have a chance that we are full of integrity, that we are honest. But in Tantra, how would you know? Because all the gluttons, all the fornicators, all the greedies can very easily hide behind the name of Tantra. And actually they are not looking for Nirvana. They are looking for pleasure. And one momentary glimpse of Nirvanic bliss is more than a lifetime of sensual pleasures. Therefore, it is important for every practitioner of Tantra, not all the practitioners of Tantra are into sexual Tantra. There are practitioners of Tantra, even in this room, who are celibate. So it's fine. I'm not saying that only referring to sexuality. I'm saying that referring to everything. There are many people who come and, uh, you know, they go through all our retreats and then they say, oh, the Agama retreats are a joke compared to the retreats which I have done in I don't know what monastery. They are not a joke in terms of spiritual efficiency. I actually would dare say that some of our retreats have a formidable spiritual efficiency. And people in eight days get results which are incredible. But these people are not looking at the results. These people are looking at how severe it is. If it is tough, then your mind has a guarantee that you are not indulging, that you are really severe with yourself. Some people want severity. It's one of the statements which we often encounter. Like, oh, Agama can't be such a serious school of spirituality because Swami is not tough enough on people. Like, you know, people are allowed to do a lot of things and get away with it and we would like to see more pressure. Like if Swami would have a big stick and go around beating people up for minor misdemeanors, people will feel more safe that it's like, aha, you know, there is some serious supervision in this school. There is some, you know, people are really doing something. That may be true from a certain standpoint, but it trusts, it hides a very not trusting mentality. Like you need a stick to make sure that you are spiritually committed and you have aspiration. Ultimately, the spiritual aspiration is a matter of everyone's conscience. We all have a conscience. If you are in Agama, you know why you are in Agama. It's not my function to go around with a stick and beat you up to check why you are in Agama. It's God that takes care of that anyway. The universe takes care of all the forces of the universe. The gunas are acting upon the gunas, as Krishna beautifully said. Therefore, there is no need for that. The only need is for me from time to time to come and ring this bell and say, Are you here for a life of sensual pleasures? 
or are you here for that one moment of nirvanic bliss? Don't cheat yourselves. See things into perspective and understand this hierarchy. To enjoy a single moment of nirvanic bliss is more precious to enjoy any amount of sensual bliss. It doesn't say you should give up the sensual bliss. This depends if you follow a tantric path or a non-tantric path. And yes, the tantric path is more slippery because in a certain way you, you play with fire. Buddha, originally, when he referring to the sexual intercourse, I'm not able to quote it a la lettre, but I'm quoting pretty close to the words of the Buddha. Buddha said, man, you stuck your penis into a yoni. You should have better stuck your penis into a jar of burning coals. Why? Because the yoni is very pleasant for a man's lingam. And therefore you are going to get addicted. You are, want to, you are going to want it again tomorrow. And the day after tomorrow. And even when you will be dead. You will not be able to go in nirvana. Because you will want to get reincarnated in samsara. To have a little bit more of that yoni yet. And thus you are tied to samsara. Because you want the yoni. And therefore Buddha simply says. Forget about the yoni. Detach from all the yonis of this universe, become completely indifferent to it, and then you are going to be free of that tie. Tantra says play with the yoni as much as you want. Isn't there a risk then that you get into addiction? See, this is the problem. Let, let's take the issue of cocaine. Cocaine is a medical drug and cocaine is an addictive drug. Peasants and farmers, Indians in South America, they chewed on coca leaves for 2,000 years and they used them as strengthener when they were traveling through the mountains. And they were not becoming addicts. They were not becoming mafia people. They were just farmers using one of God's pharmacy. It's just a plant which happens to live in the jungle and you eat a leaf or two of it and it gives you some extra strength. Those people lived a good life and they were decent citizens. And then there are people who snort cocaine like a vacuum cleaner and they go psychotic and neurotic and eventually they start shooting people or God knows doing what. And those people really need to be curbed because they have gone into the neurotic, psychotic aspect of it. Remember, it's not the cocaine which was guilty. It is what was done about it. It's the same with the pleasures and all those. It is how you deal with the things. A thing can be dangerous and you can deal with it constructively. It is known today from the accounts of the imperial, royal, whatever, court of England in the end of the 19th century that Queen Victoria, yes, the Puritanic Queen Victoria, who ruled for 60 years or something like this, was one of the biggest consumers of cocaine the world has ever known. Because the cocaine was legal in those days, 
and the pharmacist of Queen Victoria, the the private physician, was serving her daily with cocaine. Queen Victoria was a Zvadistanistic Gemini woman who to keep her Manipura up and to fuck a whole world, she was snorting a lot of cocaine. She lived up till the age of 84. So you cannot say that cocaine kills people. Queen Victoria is an example of a cocaine snorter who didn't die and lived a long life and actually was respected till the very last day of her life. As a, no, until today she is venerated as one of the greatest queens the British Empire has known. That's why I am saying it is not that sensual pleasures are forbidden. The question is if you get lost in them, if they possess you, if you forget about the original goal of life. This is what makes the tantric path so slippery and this is why guidance is needed. Because we have, you know, we have ways of seeing it, no? Take, for example, you know, like people say, yeah, yeah, you tantra, especially the people who do sexual tantra, uh, you have a free license for sex, don't you? Yeah, but how many people have studied and achieved sexual continence, brahmacharya, perfectly? And then they know what it is. Because, of course, in the moment when you live a life of sensual pleasures, then you will not be able to conform completely to the very ideal of Brahmacharya. And thus, basically you can see it. It shines through. That is why it is worth meditating on this relationship. Like, what is your life? Is your life a search of fun? I've seen a commentary made 20 years ago against Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the transcendental meditation in which the transcendental meditation and Maharishi were labeled as a complete hoax because people started practicing TM. They had intense purifications. They had intense phenomena of purification and sometimes they didn't feel good physically for a period of time. Sometimes they had emotional outbursts and other things. And the person considered that a disqualification, unacceptable. This demonstrates that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi is a fiasco. That person, the person who wrote that article, is a selfish idiot who thinks that spiritual practice is supposed to be like walking on rose petals. People think that even if they come to a Tantra school, they are just going to have fun from morning till evening. Those of you who have been in a Tantra school for a year or two or three or four or five or more, you can tell to the others that it's not a walk on the rose petals. There is a lot of pain that sometimes you have to take. There are lots of challenges. Tantra is not a discipline meant to give fun. That that is the difference between actual Tantra and Red Tantra, which is a desperate attempt to just chase pleasure wherever you see it around you. But there is another approach, and that approach is the mature, complete approach in which you realize that when you put yourself into spiritual evolution, there will be a roller coaster, there will be ups and downs, There will be spiritual tests. 
There will be moments of darkness in your soul. There will be mistakes which you will do. There will be many ups and downs. Nobody is expecting that spiritual evolution is going to be comfortable. But the interesting thing is that even when it's uncomfortable, you feel happy in your heart in a mysterious way. Like you got something really nasty, you did a hundred with the Anabandas and then suddenly you have eruptions all over on your skin and as a moron, you are mysteriously happy. Everybody says, oh, terrible. And you say, oh, nonsense, it's wonderful, it's okay. I, I knew something was going to happen. It's coming up, it's okay. Why are you happy when you've got eruptions on your skin? You are happy because happiness is not the same thing with pleasure. People who are happy are not really chasing for pleasure. And pleasure is like sweets, you know. You can eat sweets for a while and then suddenly you cannot eat sweets anymore. You feel, I take one more sweet, I'm going to vomit. Like people can get sick and tired of pleasure. Life is not only made of pleasure. And that is why you need to keep things into perspective. Eight. The smallest good deed done unselfishly is more precious than innumerable good deeds done selfishly. This is touching the very essence of karma yoga. If you do innumerable good deeds selfishly, you are going to get a lot of good karma. Selfish good deeds produce good karma. Good for you. But a good deed done unselfishly puts you in touch with God. It makes you possessed by the divine spirit. Nothing can compare to that. All the good karma in the world cannot compare with this ineffable touch with the divine consciousness that we have when we do actual karma yoga. That we do something which is unselfish and we do it and we know this was our contribution. This was our multiplication of the denar, as Jesus puts it. There's a parable of Jesus with a man who gives a number of denars of coins to three people, and only one of them is multiplying it. And the, the lender, who is God, is happy with the one who multiplied it. And that is the famous expression in the Bible, that you should multiply the denar. Like if you came with ten qualities when you are born as a child, when you die you should have eleven qualities. You should use this life for multiplying the dinner. You should not die as you are born. Stagnation is not good enough. God wants a little bit of progress in every lifetime. Therefore there has to be a little bit of multiplication of virtue. So, this multiplication of virtue comes by the good deed done unselfishly. Since you cannot refrain from all actions, you live in the modern world, remember that it is very, very important to do 
some good deeds unselfishly from time to time. From time to time, once a day, once every other day, once a week, depending on the scope of the things and depending on your spiritual life, you should make good deeds unselfishly. Even if it's a five-minute thing, that five-minute of a good deed done unselfishly is more precious than innumerable good deeds done selfishly. Thus, use the more powerful currency here. Use the one which is more precious than the innumerable amounts of the others. Do good deeds unselfishly. Otherwise said, do karma yoga. Do five minutes per day of karma yoga. In the old days, I was seeing that people in the school, they were busy with their yoga practice. Some only were giving lip service to that, actually. And they were not doing any karma yoga. And I even recommended, like five years ago, this was a thing active in the school, that people were told, you know, when you go to the fourth level and you have only two classes every week, then you should do at least 30 minutes of karma yoga every day. No, like Swami Shivananda, when he, in his famous book, Practice of Yoga, he gives a sort of a spiritual diary where he says, every evening you should fill up this form. And that form said, you know, like you are an accountant doing the accounts of the day. How many minutes of Hatha Yoga did I do today? How many minutes of meditation did I do today? And one of the points was, how many minutes of Karma Yoga did I do today? How many minutes of self-study, of Svadhyaya? How many minutes of Kirtan, Bhajan, devotion? Like, what have you really done today for your spiritual practice to make sure that you are not a hypocrite, that you are not just a lip service person who just is all talk and no action? And in this way, Karma Yoga is a part of it. Many people thought that, oh, we forced them to do karma yoga because we wanted people to work for the school. Today, there is not even this recommendation in the papers. No? And yet there are plenty of people who do karma yoga because they love to leave a trace. They love to live their lives usefully. They love to actually do something in this world. And if you don't do it for agama, then for whom will you do it? Why isn't Agama good enough for you to do something to support it? No? So therefore, what I'm saying here is this. The smallest amount of Karma Yoga cannot be compared with any amount of karmic work. Karmic work produces karma, and you might want to create good karma for yourselves. That's your right to do so. But five minutes of Karma Yoga do more than the whole day of karmic things. From another standpoint, not for your karma, but it is that thing which I told you. Five minutes of the superior level is more than a lifetime of the inferior level. Because the superior level puts you in touch with something which otherwise you will not have a clue about it anywhere in life. That is why karma yoga is a gift, many, many yogis said. You don't understand spiritual life if you don't do some karma yoga at one point or another to see 
what this selfless action is like. Number nine, the renunciation of every worldly thing, parenthesis, home, family, friends, property, fame, duration of life, and even health, renouncing everything, is more precious than the giving of inconceivably vast worldly wealth in charity. Like Francis of Assisi is much, much bigger in the world of God than Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. Those people can give $30 billion in charity. It's not equal if you ruin your health or lose one year of your life in because you do too many austerities, because you do too much selfless service, or too much prayer, or too much this and that. This sounds very dangerous and threatening, but remember, it doesn't actually mean that you have to shorten your life. That is actually condemned, specifically, in many, many spiritual environments, it is condemned on the same level with suicide. It's a, it's a form of covered suicide. So it is not condoned. It's not about destroying yourself. It is the renunciation. Renunciation means like you detach yourself. It might happen. It might not happen. But you are going forward with your thing. I remember every day almost the incredible experience which I had when I went in the Palestine desert in Wadi Kelt, somewhere between Jerusalem and Jericho, where I saw the place where hundreds and actually thousands of people lived in some canyons in the desert, some of them 100 meters high up on a vertical wall with no access to any food, with no access to any water. Like, when I reached in that place, which is very hardly accessible today, due to the events happening in that part of the world, it's a shooting zone, so it's pretty unsafe to go there at this time. But when, when I went there and sat in the middle of it, I suddenly could connect in Akasha with all the people who are there, and I could feel the energy, and it was something which I never read in any book, it was something which stroked me, which hit me with such a vivid thing. Because the people, and there was not one or two, there were hundreds, thousands of them who did that again and again, year after year. And when I was looking at their habitations, I was thinking, you know, like these people risked their lives totally. Like when you went there, you didn't know if you're going to have food. You didn't know if you're going to have water. It is said that somebody was coming and bringing water periodically and they were getting it with a bucket or something. Yeah, but what if that person would get scarlet fever and die? Then nobody comes for three weeks or something. Now what do you do then? These people couldn't care less. They went there into a cave and did prayer from morning till evening. No food guaranteed. No water guaranteed. Nothing. And it's one thing to hear it theoretically. And it's another thing to go in such a place 
and see it with your own eyes and to sit down for half an hour and try to feel what kind of people, like what would it take of me that tomorrow I go there and do that thing? What would it take? How, how must you feel when you take that step? And there have been hundreds and thousands who took that step only in that place, not to mention many other places. That is why I'm saying that the renunciation of worldly things, it doesn't mean you actively destroy yourself. It's not an invitation to suicide, but it's a sort of surrender. It's a sort of a complete detachment to home, family. Yes, that's what Buddha did. That's why Buddha is praised by the Buddhists and generally in spirituality, no? Because he renounced home, family, friends, property. The Christian people who live like the fathers of the desert, they said you should never live when you go in according to their rules. They recommended communities of three, four people and those people meeting once a week or once a year. Like you didn't have friends, you didn't have chit-chat, you didn't have social life, you're just going in a hut and practicing for the rest of your life. That's all. Therefore, what I'm saying here, this renunciation, the renunciation, which is the renunciation of Buddha, right, which is celebrated, it's one of the big Buddhist festivals, I forgot which one of them, but it's one, the renunciation of every worldly thing, home, family, friends, property, fame, duration of life, like some people would say, well, if you go vegetarian, maybe you're going to live five years less. That will not deter Ramakrishna from being vegetarian. Like Ramakrishna says, it's not the years of life I'm interested in. It's grace that I'm interested in. If I have grace, then it doesn't matter what science says about the years of my life. Because grace can do anything if necessary. And if not necessary, then it is not useful anyway. And thus, renouncing home, family, friends, property, fame, very difficult for many people, name and fame, duration of life, and even health. Like, remember that Francis of Assisi was sick for about 20 years. Teresa of Avila was sick for more than 30 years. Padre Pio... These are all Christian mystics who lived with this feeling that they had to carry a cross on their shoulder and they had to suffer for the, for the world and this. I'm not saying necessarily that's the best option. But these people chose to live like their lives according to this system of belief, this faith system. Those people lived a lifetime of disease. They were ill for decades, they were ready to sacrifice that as well. So thus, to be able to sacrifice, to renounce everything, which doesn't mean it has to happen, it's just a renunciation, is more precious than the giving of inconceivably vast worldly wealth in charity. It doesn't say that giving charity is bad. But it says that renouncing beats it. As a very, very beautiful scene about this 
in the movie that we often recommended and very, very seldom showed in the school, in the movie called Beckett, about Sir Thomas Beckett, who became from a British aristocrat, became a great saint in the 12th century England. And uh, there is this beautiful, beautiful scene when he converts to spirituality and then he gives up everything. And nobody was doing it. People were already hypocrite. And they couldn't understand, like, are you really doing it? Yes, he said. It's not, this is not what's written black on white, that when you take the vows to be a monk, you give everything you have and you don't own anything anymore. People couldn't believe it. Although he was just doing the normal thing. Finally, this is one which I often love to quote. It was a statement which I often repeated onto myself to strengthen myself in the challenges of spiritual life. Because you should never believe that I went into the spiritual life without challenges or tests. Everybody has their challenges and tests. And I have had my ups and downs as well. And this statement has helped me a lot. One lifetime spent in the quest for enlightenment is more precious than all the lifetimes during an aeon, a cosmic cycle, spent in worldly pursuits. This helped my resolve. One life spent in the quest for enlightenment. Like, when will you take the decision, this life, at least from now, the past you cannot change, but you can always say, my life starts today. It's only here and now. My life, as far as I can control it with my consciousness now, one life spent in the quest for enlightenment, like honestly to say, I want to consecrate the remainder of my life to the quest of enlightenment. Ultimately, in India, this is what sannyasa is. Sannyasa is a vow, which is exactly like the monastic vows in Europe, which simply says, starting today, I shall do nothing but the quest of God. My life is going to be focused on nothing. That's the only purpose which I have in life. Like, I'm not starting a boutique. I'm not making a football team of kids. I'm not uh, organizing, I don't know, Olympic Games. I'm not interested in anything except in this. My goal is the quest for enlightenment. One lifetime spent in the quest for enlightenment is more precious than all the lifetimes during an eon during a Kalpa, a Manvantara, a big cosmic cycle, during a day of Brahma, if you want, spend in worldly pursuits. Like, you have ten lifetimes in which in one you've been a big landowner, in one you've been a big genius, in one you've been a... Tibetan yogis say one lifetime spent in search of enlightenment is more valuable than all the others. Because... It happens on a new level. This is another level of existence. Not everybody has the strength to commit themselves because ultimately it's a commitment. 
at some point in your life, you have to make a commitment. And not everybody has the strength to do that commitment, to say, I shall, I, I will give it a try. This is, I'm going to give it a total honest try. Maybe I lived a hundred lifetimes doing many, many things. Now here is one lifetime in which I will go for enlightenment. In this one, I'm honestly going there. I will try with the best of my capacity, without hypocrisy, without falsity, without playing games. Honestly, I will try. I will give it a try. This, says Tibetan yoga, is more valid than all the other lifetimes. It's again very judgmental, right? Because it means that if your mom has been a person that has been all her life materially interested, then you as her child can be judgmental and say, Mom, your life is worth shit compared to the life of Buddha or even compared to the life of Walter, who, look, is doing yoga all day long and so on. Normal society will get very irked by such a statement. Such a statement comes from fundamentalistic spirituality. Only the spiritualists, only the hardcore spiritualists think this way and all the rest of the society thinks that they are crazy. The rest of the society doesn't think that Ramakrishna is more valuable than a thousand anonymous citizens. The whole the society doesn't feel that one month spent in search of God is more important than a lifetime fiddling around with material values. Because the normal society is trying to defend its ignorance. Whenever a Buddha or a Jesus appears, they are like a thorn in the eye. They are like a reminder of some values and some truths and people do not want to be reminded of those. People get angry when somebody reminds them of those. Every time when people see Francis of Assisi giving up the wealth of his father and going poor and spiritual, the society even killed one of the pupils of Francis of Assisi, tortured him and did a lot of other things. Why? Because this man wanted to live like the birds of the sky, as Jesus said, and he didn't want to own anything on the face of this earth. So why can't you let them be? Let those crazy people who don't want to own anything and live like the birds of the sky go and form a community somewhere, a butt-naked republic on an island, and let them just live according to their crazy spiritual ideals. No! The society wants to destroy them to wipe them out. Because you know what? Even if you are thick-skinned and you don't get it, you know it, it irks you, but you can clench your teeth and kind of dismiss it, then your child one day will pack and go in the yogaville and then curse them because they took my child because my child got seduced by the idea to become like Francis of Assisi or to become like one of the followers of Francis of Assisi. So even if not directly, indirectly, such a world, such an example, such a person, they are a slap in the face for everybody. They are a merciless reminder that there are other values in life and maybe you are like a hypnotized moth 
around the lamp, just about to get your wings burned by living a life of superficiality and not going to the ultimate sense. And that's why in Kali Yuga, in Satya Yuga, or in some traditional societies, sages were respected. But in Kali Yuga, Milarepa and Rumi and Francis of Assisi, they are not respected. They are hated. They are feared because they bring a reminder to the world that you could actually live your life in this way as well. And then people don't like to be reminded. People say, hey, who the heck do you think to remind me? Like there is the devilish arrogance which comes in people. Like, hey, don't tell me. Now don't teach me. Why not? Because it provokes something in you. It is stirring an old wound. Because everybody in the heart of their heart knows that they would like to try to do what Milarepa did, but they don't have the aspiration They don't have the motivation. They don't have, and thus, they are just bound to sit on the side and point fingers. They are in the situation of envying those that have the balls, the guts, to play the game. The people who don't dare to play this game, they hate the guts of those who do, unfortunately. And that's why in Kali Yuga, it's such a, materialistic environment that you find a lot of harassment at the address of actual religion. Oh no, nobody harasses people that give charity and these people are honorable citizens. Even Don Corleone can give a hundred million dollars to the Vatican for charitable causes and then he suddenly is uh, polished as an honorable citizen. But in the moment when somebody becomes like Padre Pio or Francis of Assisi, suddenly there is a lot of hissing and stuff against them because those are the real thing. The real thing is not the charity and the other things. So I'm saying these things for you to understand that these values are not very fashionable today. The fact that a sage is worth more than a thousand idiots or the fact that uh, you know, a lifetime spent in search of the truth is worth all the other lifetimes in a cosmic cycle, these are not very politically correct and appreciated statements because these are in your face. These are a violent reminder of the fact that other people live their lives in another way and they saw in life something else, and many people feel provoked and irritated by this. I always tell to people, not all of you in this room are having the same amount of aspiration. Not all of you in this room are going to do the same amount of spiritual practice. And unfortunately, as much as that sounds as negative suggestion, I know it for a fact that not all of you in this room by the end of this physical life would have reached nirvana or enlightenment. Which doesn't mean that you are not going to reach it later in another lifetime. But the laws of statistics show that even in a yoga school not everybody reaches spiritual enlightenment. On the contrary, very few actually do. There is a pyramid-like structure 
where a thousand start yoga and one finishes, crosses the finish line, still running, still standing, victorious. And that's why uh, we know that, but this should never prompt you to jump from one extreme to the other. Like people, when they don't do enough spirituality, they collapse and they say, it means I'm a bad person. It means I don't love God. It means I'm a hypocrite. And they start whipping themselves and then they give up everything. That's the worst thing to do. Accept from the very beginning that not everybody in this room has the motivation and aspiration of Milarepa or of Ma'ananda Mai. But even so, you can do spirituality at the level where you are. Like, at least you can be vegetarian and not contribute to killing animals. It's as simple as that. That's not a top spirituality. But still, it's better than doing nothing. At least you are doing something. It's not worth it that if any day any one of you falls off the path of Agama or falls off the path of yoga or falls off the path of spirituality altogether because you lose your hope and you say, ah, the heck, I think it's just a dream. It won't, it won't work for me. No, I'm not cut for these things. Whatever discouraging, stupid idea you might get, remember that the last thing to do is to jump into the opposite extreme. I've seen people who quit yoga, they still consider themselves spiritual. No, 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 I didn't give up my spiritual quest. It's just that I don't think that yoga can do it for me. Fine, it's your right to, to say that, to feel that. But the point is that in the moment when they quit yoga, first thing which they do, they started eating fish, meat, and so on. And I ask them, why do you have to do that? Like it's not a package deal. No, it's, they don't come together. If you give up standing on your head, it doesn't mean you have to give up vegetarianism as well. Why do you give up everything? This is comparable with a situation when an army is fighting with another army and then suddenly the soldiers in one of the armies, they panic. They lose and seeing that they lose, they turn their back and they run. This is the tragic situation for any battle, any general, any army leader knows that you have to do anything in your strength to avoid this because this is the time when you lose ten times more than any other time in the battle. Every good military strategist knows that when you lose, you immediately fall back on the next line of defense. There is already a second line of defense and you fall back on it and there you start defending again. And if the enemy is yet too strong, there is a third line of defense. Like you never panic. You never go from defense to panicking. That, that doesn't work. That's the ultimate tragedy in military strategy. And therefore, it's the same with spirituality. It's the ultimate tragedy in spiritual practice. If you go from active spiritual practice to total despair. You just despair and run squealing and then you don't do anything anymore. You give up even the little which you did before. It's, it's much more logical that if you discover that you are not Milarepa, then you should fall on the next line of defense. 
What is your second line of defense? Okay, let's say you discover that you can't do spirituality at the level of Mananda Mai. What can you do? What is still possible for you? Then don't answer nothing. There is always something that you can do. And if that is still too much, then go to the third line of defense. Like, all, don't give up. The, the war is never lost. Thus, you know, there is this proverb which you have in your first level intensive papers, which says defeated are only those who consider themselves defeated. It's the same with spirituality. You are not defeated until you say, oh, I think I'm defeated. That's the thing which you should never do. You are because you are never defeated. You are spirit. You are a spiritual being having a material experience. Right now you are spirit encased in a body made of flesh and blood. And therefore you are spirit having a material temporary experience. Make the best out of it. It's not possible to lose spirituality completely. I've seen many people who are the temperament called, called the perfectionist. And people who are perfectionistic, when it comes to this issue, because to other issues they are really lovely, but when it comes to this issue, those people are fragile as porcelain. If they can't do perfect spiritual practice, then they won't do any spiritual practice. That's stupid. Because then, these are the main candidates. You, this, this is where you find people who do seven years of yoga, then some, they do something wrong and they go depressed, and then they hang themselves. Because they think they are total fiascos, and they fucked their lives. This is perfectionism. It's extremism in the mind, which is unhealthy totally. In spirituality, perfectionism is not welcome, at least not at this point, not in this direction, because it makes you extremely fragile and extremely vulnerable. Remember, in spirituality, nobody considers themselves perfect, except perhaps of Jesus, who says, I am the Son of God. But exception made of that level of realization, everybody says, I could have done more. I could do more. You know, I'm, you know I could love more. I could love God more. I could do more for my fellow men. So what are you going to do? Hang, hang yourself because you are not doing perfectly? It's absurd. You have to learn to forgive yourself, to love yourself, and to live in your own shoes, not in other people's shoes. You cannot live in the shoes of Rumi, because you are not Rumi. Therefore, you have to learn to live your spirituality, but that spirituality has to be lived actively. It has to be lived indeed authentically, not as a lip service. With this, we have finished the chapter number 24, and it is my intention, therefore there probably will be one more evening on the next week's satsang, with the so-called 10 equal things, the chapter number 25, which is not the last, I think there are 28 chapters all in all, but the last three are very philosophical, and the text is available, it's a public domain thing, translated many, many years ago, and you can have it anyway, so you can 
read it, if you love this Tibetan spirit of yoga, then you can do more of your own study. Here in the satsang, there is only one more of those paragraphs, the ten so-called equal things. I cannot guarantee that we'll finish them next time, but one, maximum two more satsangs, and then we have finished with that. As I said, we are at a turning point, which means after that, we are going to be able to change the subject. I already have some pretty clear ideas of some things that I would like to comment during the satsangs, but still we are open to suggestions. So any one of you wants to do a suggestion, better in writing, not to have it forgotten, because verba volant, you know, the words are flying away and then we don't remember what was said. Write it to your teacher, to the registration, to the administration, to me personally. Write a little note if you think that there is a very, very important subject which this summer, this season, you want to hear commented in our weekly satsangs. With this, we have finished for tonight. Let us remain for a minute in silence to allow the mind to calm down to those deep levels and thus to absorb the message. And then it is over for tonight with the satsang. And that will do for now. With this, we stop here. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining tonight and see you in the next satsangs. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.